Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, a podcast wherein we are taking a deep dive as discerning disciples of cinematic dogma. All of the films oh nominated God. for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And this is our serious series on the 1948 films nominated for Best Picture at the 21st Academy Awards held in 1949. I'm not sure I agree with that discerning disciples dogma <laughs> business, but I appreciate <laughs> the alliteration that, for sure. That was... Can you do too much? No, that was great. That was awesome. <laughs> Last episode, we tackled Shakespeare. This week, not so much. It's more like Old MacDonald had a farm. <laughs> on this farm, he had a deaf-mute daughter. That's right, it's Johnny Belinda. If it sounds like we're hyping this film up at any point, it might be because this film needs as much help as it can get. As usual, we should probably begin with answering the question, had we seen this before? Josh, had you seen this film before? Um, A peek behind the curtain, we were going to record this episode many months ago, and I watched half of this movie many months ago, and then actually watched it its entirety uh, about a week ago. So to answer your question, no, I had not. In fact, I had not heard of it before we scheduled this episode. Uh, Ken, you picked 1948 for the year, and I'd heard of four of the five nominees for Best Picture. I had not heard of this, um, nor had I seen it. I don't know what you're talking about, Josh, because if I remember last week, we did Hamlet. So months ago, I I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the um, magic of podcasting uh-huh. and sitting on episodes and not releasing them right away. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um I also I, I had heard of this film, but I couldn't have told you a darn thing about it. I had just heard the title. And I might not even have actually heard the title so much as I just kind of in my head it occupied a similar space as Johnny Guitar, which is not the same thing as this. Um <laughs> that is kind of a feminist western directed by Nicholas Ray starring Joan Crawford. Uh, this is not a feminist Western. Uh, you might argue this is not even like remotely feminist, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Well, no, I'll, I'll be this honest. is not a lot of things. Yeah, I, I had never seen the film. I was aware of it, and I was aware of it principally because it stars Jane Wyman. Uh, she plays the deaf mute daughter that we referred to a short while ago. Um, she wins- The titular Belinda, but not the titular Johnny. Correct. <laughs> she okay. She wins the Oscar for best for best actress. She does. That's that's the only thing I knew about this film going in. Um, the only the only th- the only reason why honestly. It's, it's also sorry. I'm cutting you off. It's also interestingly the only thing it won. It went one for twelve. A la we will get into Power that. of the we'll Dog. We'll get into that. Yes. We'll get into that. It, it, we'll get into that. it 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 was actually popular. It it a lot of people saw it. Honestly. Guys, Jane Wyman is probably best known for being the first wife of Ronald Reagan. That's along with this Best Actress Oscar. Something I did not know either. Yeah, they were married. She was married to him when she made this film. That that is it. They they divorced the following year. I kid you not. It's alleged that they divorced due to a difference in their politics. Her being a lifelong Republican and him being a Democrat at the time. The thing I liked Uh, about Jane Wyman was the part where she didn't talk. Oh, yeah, that's that's a pretty good Reagan, dude. Like, uh, to those listening, Ronald Reagan was not the ghost of Ronald Reagan was not in the studio. That was just TJ. I got to be careful that one because it turns. The, too, bring out the Gipper. It gets too close to my Jack Nicholson. You know, here well, to, to bring a reference in that listeners might be more familiar with. If you've if you've seen Back to the Future, in that moment when Marty's telling Doc Brown that Ronald Reagan is president, Doc responds incredulously. Ronald Reagan, the actor, then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. I suppose Jane Wyman is first lady. 
That's, oh. he does say he does say her name there. Yeah, I never. Okay, that's yeah. the that's the poll. Wow. That's if you've seen Back to wow. the Future, here's here's your reference. That's your connection to Johnny Belinda. And so you don't need to watch Jane it. Jane Wyman is is Doc Brown's reference for Mrs. Mrs. Reagan. That's that's crazy. Yep. When did Nancy end of the picture? Uh, Not to I, divulge the Johnny Belinda episode into a history of the Reagan family, but I, I had to look this up. Ironically, Doc Brown would have been correct because I think that's 1955. They were already divorced. 55, yeah. So October 21st, 1955. Doc, Doc Brown is is really reaching for the Wyman reference even in 1955 because mm-hmm. they were no longer a couple. Uh, but yeah, that's 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 pretty much all you need to know about Jane Wyman, other than for certain people. Of a certain age, they might know her as the villainous matriarch in a TV soap opera in the 70s and 80s called Falcon Crest. That's no, I've never heard of that. It's Shout out to all you Falcon Crest fans out yes. there. It, it competed with <laughs> Dynasty. That was so. So Ken, because I hadn't heard of this, and the three of us weren't like intimately familiar. What to those like us listening? What is Johnny Belinda? What is this movie? So Johnny Belinda follows the. Uh, the appear first first time appearance of a doctor by the name of Robert Richardson. He shows up to this island. Not the great cinematographer, not no. the Oscar winning cinematographer who frequently works with Oliver Stone. That's and correct. Tarantino, a different Robbie Richardson. Exactly. Different Robbie Richardson. Yeah. This is played by an actor by the name of Lou Ayers, who at this point, and honestly, in retrospect, most famous for maybe All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with a lot of his filmography, but uh, nope. he was in the original All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, and yeah, he plays a doctor who shows up to this island in in I believe it's supposed to be like Nova, Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. Yeah, right? yeah. How yeah. about yeah. that opening thing too? They're like off the coast near the water <laughs> of Nova yeah, Scotia. <laughs> this honestly one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> yeah, and you can tell it was somebody that they're like, "How Canadian can you be?" Well, we'll get it. We'll get into this. We'll get into this. But like, so much of this movie was like. How fascinating for people in 1948 to learn that deaf people aren't stupid <laughs> and that Canada exists. Yes. <laughs> like those are the two big drops of the movie. Yes, which, yeah. which, spoiler alert: it's it's filmed in Northern California, not Canada, and Jane Wyman's not deaf or mute. But you know what? Correct. We're we're going to pretend. Uh, and yes, yeah, so he shows up, Acting. and he's a well-educated doctor. He's got he's got all these newfangled ideas about medicine because you know he's a professional. They, they, they also established pretty early on, including in that intro, it's a very small town, an insular town. It is an island. And like, you know, uh, to use a generous term, simple people <laughs> that are not exposed to the, the – the doctors are very worldly and like the smartest guy on the island by a country mile and it's, that kind of thing. It's like, an island full of ignoramuses. They're just – they're all – Sure. They're all yeah. close-minded. To the point that when he's introduced to the McDonald family, I wasn't joking about that, folks. It's the <laughs> McDonald family. They're farming on the island to the best they can. It's a rocky outcropping of an island. But you got Black McDonald and his daughter, Belinda, and I think it's his late wife's sister, maybe, played by Agnes Moorhead, or his sister, I guess. Um, but that's it. This that's little, Maggie McDonald. This, this little family, and even the father and aunt refer to the deaf and mute daughter, Belinda, as the dummy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't talk, and she doesn't. nobody can talk to her. Nobody has attempted to figure out a way to communicate with this woman. Other than, other than making, like, what looks like the marks from the Blair Rich Project on a notebook, <laughs> just to see, like, how much work she's done. 
<laughs> I mean, she can fulfill grain orders yeah. using Blair Witch markings. Yes. So I guess she's not completely dumb. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the first person, the first person to try to communicate with her is the worldly doctor, who again, <laughs> again, apparently audiences in 1940 thought, "Hey, can deaf people think?" <laughs> And then this movie comes in to answer, yes, they can, in fact. Is it honestly, okay, so, like, is that, is that, are you kind of doing a joke, or do we really know, I, the movie's extremely patronizing to her, I think not just, like, the characters of it, but also the, the approach the movie has. Would this yes. really have been that, like, are, are we doing the thing where it's like everybody in the past is stupid, or, like, were people really like, well, shit, I had no idea she was a real person. That's what I want to ask you guys about because I I legitimately did not know. Uh, to to your point, the movie like goes to pretty painstaking lengths to like explain what sign language is. Yes. Yeah. And so I I had to look up like when was sign language first like a thing? Was it like a recent phenomenon in the forties? And no, it had been around for like a hundred years, a hundred and fifty years, something like that. It'd been around for a long time. So like I don't know if it just wasn't like widely known about and like this movie was legitimately teaching the american public what sign language was and again that deaf people weren't all ignorant like they actually just couldn't hear you like that was the that was their whole their only you know issue but i don't know like the movie treats it as if like sign language is a new concept and that deaf people being able to like actually communicate with the world is a new concept but like I don't know. At this time, there would have been institutes, and a situation like this, if you have enough, if family had enough money, they may have sent Belinda away because it's the combination of her being deaf and mute. I think the fact that nobody can communicate her, with her whatsoever, and she doesn't appear to nobody's made an effort to even help her read lips. And to be honest, even the doctor, after he first meets, meets her in the film, like somehow he managed magically has a book to help him. Uh, teach sign language by the way well he worked he he said he worked in the hospital with uh deaf children yeah but he's got a book just handy i guess he brought it with him but he, the next day he, he sets out to try and communicate with her by the way not doing a very good job i don't know if you picked up on this but he's trying to emphasize like specific words to teach her but he keeps running on like he's trying to get her to read read his lips for certain words but then kind of haphazardly continuing on with the conversation I don't know how she's picking up anything from him. It was it was interesting for me to see, like, given that within the past two or three years, I feel like we've had more uh, prominent of a representation of characters who use ASL in film. I mean, the obvious yeah. point for this is Coda uh, or Sound of Metal. Um, yeah. By the, real quick, by the time by the time this releases, we'll have a new Best Picture winner. But at the time of recording this, the current reigning Best Picture winner is Coda, where. American Sign Language featured heavily, deaf characters featured heavily, yeah. And and so seeing the way that, like, films depict it now, where, you know, you're assuming that you're, all of your audience isn't fluent in ASL, so they'll do a combination of, um, sometimes I've seen films use subtitles for that, uh, sometimes I've se- they just do it where, like, the person kind of will... <laughs> answer them in a way that's like clearly for the audience to be like, Oh, that's what they just said. Yeah. So it was interesting for me to kind of watch in this film about how they did that. And it seemed that part of the way they achieved that here was by not really having her say anything, communicate anything very long or very complicated either. Yeah. No, if we're being, if we're being completely honest, Lou Aries is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in this movie, both literally and figuratively. Uh, translating her performance for the audience. Yeah. 
I did think he was, I thought he was quite good. Um, I, I hadn't agree. seen him before. Uh, he, for me, was like a love child between Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World and, oh God, yeah. and Brian Cranston. You're absolutely right. <laughs> oh wow yeah yeah and then there was there was one more in there that i forgot i should have put it in my notes i saw a little but... bit of peter sellers a little, little bit of peter sellers in this guy that's not who i was thinking of but i can i can see that there was somebody else maybe it's just a guy in a black and white movie with a mustache so that i automatically think it's peter sellers but uh-huh maybe that's a me problem you're right though like she she does not communicate for like she never says a sentence she says like a word at a time and the doctor just responds to let the audience clue the audience in. There's there's definitely no subtitle to ASL in this. That's for sure. I don't think she's emoting very well with her face either. Like she doesn't change her reactions. She kind of smiles and nods a lot. Yeah, that's like her whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess what I'm getting at is I'm perplexed as to how she wins an Oscar for this performance. Well, again, that's kind of like okay. My whole take on this movie is I'm like. Is, is this what I'm, I'm surprised this was nominated for best picture. Uh, like I think looking at the other four, again, they're movies I've heard of their movies, with reputations. And then you look at this and you're like, what was it about this that people were responding to? And so that brings me back to my question of like in the forties, was it like a novel concept? I, I'm sure there weren't many deaf characters on screen in the 1940s. Like that, that a deaf character being the center of a movie could be a novel concept. And maybe like teaching what American sign language is could be a novel concept, but I don't know. Is is that like the whole thing? Just like the novelty of a deaf person on screen? And the representation and acknowledgement of sexual assault and rape was cutting edge. That's true. That's true. So uh, we didn't didn't cover that yet, but there is a sexual assault that kind of puts the plot in motion in this movie. Which I guess was was certainly shocking at the time. I mean, in modern modern day uh, cinema, it's, it's your kind of standard old cinema or old Hollywood type of situation where it's about to get dramatic and they cut away. Um, there's a build up to the scene. It's clear that he, that, that Lockie, the character of Lockie, who's this local fisherman, um, he's a, he, he's about to take her in the barn uh, against her will, obviously. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not like a graphic depiction of a sexual assault, but it is like, I don't know how many other movies in the 1940s were even implying a non non consensual sexual encounter. I, I don't think they were. I think this really was like groundbreaking in right. terms of mainstream yeah. cinema, and also at the time, just kind of what was allowed to be implied. Yeah, Hayes Code. I mean, they didn't even say the word ovaries in it, right? There's that joke about her having her arteries removed, and then she's like, "It's not arteries." Shut, 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 shut. Those old ladies in the in the dance hall. Correct. Oh yep. wow, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, she, yeah. And, and we well, should... God forbid we say the word ovaries in 1940s movies. Should we should we bleep it out of this podcast? I I'll bleep it later. Yeah, I'll make sure we bleep it. I don't even know if I, I recall them ever using the the term pregnant. Maybe maybe Doctor Richardson does, and I'm just forgetting it. As opposed, to I don't think child. so either. I think they just say she's going to have a child, right? Because yeah. so as a result of the rape, she uh, ends up pregnant, and for the rest of the film. Uh, Obviously, the, the the people think she's just easy, or somebody took advantage of her, you know. But eh, well, no they big think deal. it's the doctor. They, oh, they that's blame true. the doctor yeah. because the doctor is always hanging around her because he's like the one of the two people in the whole town that can even, has ever ever tried to communicate with her. So he has like a, a friendship with her, and because he's always around her, they're like, oh, obviously he took advantage of a deaf girl, and and there's an interesting thing there as well, which like I'm gonna phrase this very carefully. Obviously. 
in the film, it's unambiguous that it was rape, it was assault, it was non-consensual. However, nobody sees that but the two people involved. And so once the word's out that she's pregnant, none of the town people presume it's anything but someone taking advantage of her, which is another kind of layer to the patronizing, like, well, there's no way she could have wanted sex. And in their defense, in their defense, they don't think she has the capacity. Yeah, she, they think she's mentally incapacitated. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, yeah, they think she's the dummy. Which, by the way, to, to I guess this is supposed to be to their credit. I mean, her her father changes his his perception of her really quickly. He yeah. goes from referring to her as the dummy to suddenly seeing his daughter in a whole new light very rapidly after the doctor uh, it, it's, uh, it's very quick. establishes communication. Um, I'm not sure that it's a believable arc to that character just flips the so, switch that's that's another thing i want to talk about is like the way this movie is structured is odd to me um as you both know i'm big on 3x structure that's how i like am able to interpret and and parse out what the story is uh the sexual assault takes place like minute 38 in a movie that's only what like an hour and a half something like that hour 42 hour 42 okay yeah so the the rape takes place at minute 38 and she reveals she's pregnant at like an hour five. And then there's like a courtroom. The movie ends with like a courtroom scene. That's I, it might be five minutes long, it's 10 minutes long tops. And like, if if you're talking about act and act breaks, like that's kind of the third act is that the courtroom stuff. And it's like really, really tacked on at the end. And this is after we spend 15 minutes just like establishing, oh yeah, deaf people can think and communicate at the front of the movie. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really rough, roughly paced and roughly constructed movie and yet uh this is the fourth highest grossing film at the the domestic box office ask yeah Yeah, you said you had box office data that's 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 wild and again (laughs) is puzzling to me of what the draw here was and i'm left just wondering if the novelty of deaf person i i mean i want to defend the movie a little bit in the sense that um just hearing you guys i think i liked it more than you did but what we all i think are talking about and probably are in agreement on is it didn't age terribly well um it was kind of a topic of the day sort of movie and maybe the filmmaking craft is not uh something you would expect out of you know a movie that is celebrated 70 something years ago however the craft even just like even just like the storytelling however um would this be the first or the last movie to get serious oscar love pretty much for merely representing something kind of topical of course not oh, no. like we all we all know the answers no <laughs> however this this got 12 oscar nominations it's got 12 oscar nominations mm-hmm. this is one of this is one of a small handful of movies that was nominated for best actor actress supporting actor and supporting actress how many movies true done that? Like maybe true five or six also though you got to remember they were doing with um the below the lines they were still doing like best cinematography in color best cinematography in black and white correct Things Even like so. that. Yeah, this gets this Even gets so. this gets a uh, art best art direction black and white, best cinematography black and white. But to your credit, Josh, yeah, it's it, or your point. There's only 15 films that have received nominations in all four categories, and this okay. is one of them. Can you name the most recent ones, TJ? What the most recent one to get actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress nominations? Um. American Hustle. I was going to say, I think it's American That's Hustle. correct. American Hustle. Then the year before that, Silver Lang's Playboy. Right. So we had two in the last decade. but Both David and Russell. Nothing since then. Both David and Russell. Do you remember the movie American Hustle at all? Because I, I, I do. don't. 
Yeah, I I do remember being pretty disappointed in it, but yeah, yeah. Well, you're a big Silver Linings Playbook guy, right? I am a huge Silver Linings Playbook guy. That's a good movie. I just I, rewatched I that, that with, last with my mom. She was in town last week, and she had never seen it before. And nice. uh, it's yeah, and I've never shown it to anybody who didn't like. Some people are like, uh, now we're turning this into Silver Linings Playbook. Some people are like, eh, it's not that great, but like it's charming. And that's the worst thing I've heard anybody say about it. If uh, if we ever have listeners and you don't like it, don't send that to me. I don't care. <laughs> He's TJ's drawing a line on silver linings. Yes, I mean, okay. Looking at just just looking real quick, like Shakespeare in Love got thirteen nominations. Uh, yes, <laughs> he unfortunately. I mean, how many did it win? Benjamin Button. Too many. That got thirteen as well. I'm, I'm aware. Yeah. My did La La Land get 14? Yes. My Fair Lady. I know, I wasn't going to bring up La La Land because I know you guys like that. Um, I, yeah, I like it enough, but great, I don't love it. Of course I like it. I like great movies, and that's a great movie. So, you know, as as evoked earlier in the podcast, this one, only one of 12, which happened as we're recording this at last year's Oscars, when this is released two years ago, Oscars, uh, The Power of the Dog went one for 12. Um, have any other movies besides Johnny Belinda and Power of the Dog on One for Twelve? I don't know offhand. I'm asking if you guys know. Offhand, I, I don't. Know. I don't think One for Twelve. There's some Over Tens. I was just gonna say there's plenty of Over Tens. Yeah, West Side Story, American yes. Hustle being one. Yeah, aforementioned American Hustle, Gangs in New York being another Over Ten. The Irishman. Um, True Grit, The Irishman. Spielberg's Honestly, West Side I think Story. Most of the Over Ten movies are better than the One for Twelve movies that I've seen. I think the color pur- so, Spielberg's color purple was yes. maybe Over Ten or Over Eleven, yeah. something like that. I thought Over Ten was the record, but you might be right. Any more Oscar talk about this movie? What else do you want to say about the Oscars in this movie? It's reflective of the era, I guess. I mean, this this film did capture the audience. Apparently, it did capture people's attention, and it it received nominations. Uh, as a result, people people did like it. I mean, they liked the performances, at least of uh, the doctor played by Lou Aries and obviously Jane Wyman who won. And yet Charles Bickford, Magnus Moorhead as old man McDonald and, and Aggie. Uh, so, yeah. So the four nominations were uh, Belinda, the, the deaf woman, the doctor, and then the deaf woman's father and her aunt, I guess, on the farm. Right. Those are the four nominations. Right. That's correct. I'm like flabbergasted that her dad got a nomination yes. for best supporting actor. Yeah, that's wild. It's it's a a performance. Not just not. I don't want to spoil it, but he doesn't. Let's put it this way: he's not in the entire film. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Honestly, I did think Agnes Moorhead was pretty good, especially as she's dealing with like getting the news, and then as the baby's being born, um, she she gets a nice close up, and um, I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciated that. Can I real quickly um, just perusing letterboxd as we're on agnes moorhead one of my favorite reviews written in all caps as a five-star review it says agnes moorhead deserved the oscar not claire trevor bitch (laughs) now i i put a comma in there after clever but there's no uh, trevor there's no punctuation at all in that sentence and it has 18 likes and i might give it 19 because that's just i think i disagree with that take i like so claire trevor won for key largo and she plays uh, kind of washed up drunk and she's really spectacular in it so i don't i, would, I, I have would. i have no problem with that i just that someone in 2017 is still really really <laughs> that diehard out there dude. for agnes moorhead <laughs> I, I love that um tj before we turn the mics on you read another letterbox review could you read that for us i think you should because i don't want me saying that taken out of context <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, uh, this is from a three-star letterbox review from a user named Andrew, and uh, this is rough. I'm just giving you a, a, a warning. This is rough. Quote, the only rape sequence it's okay to be amused at because it features a fucking violin. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say that we at Serious Film People disagree with such a sentiment and do not find this rape scene amusing. It's very upsetting, but it does include a violin. That is factually correct. <laughs> and actually, I, I do want to say it's used really well. Like... The violin is set up because uh, earlier in the movie, the doctor, Dr. Richardson, takes Belinda to, like, a dance hall um, and, like, has her put her hand on the violin so she can feel its vibrations to, so she can, like, hear, quote-unquote, the music, feel the music, and she kind of, like, starts to dance a little bit. And she's, you know, presumably never danced before. And it's, like, a really nice moment with her and the violin and music and everything. And then I think later that same night, the drunk perpetrator takes the violin, drunkenly stumbles to uh, the McDonald farm, and is, like, playing the violin as he approaches Belinda in the barn. But, like, he doesn't know... First of all, he doesn't know how to play the violin. And, two, he's drunk. So it just sounds like this really discordant, creepy accompaniment to the intense scene about to happen. I mean, like, discordant violins is, like, already kind of, like, a signifier of, like, intensity in, in, in horror movies and stuff like that. So it's just kind of, like, made that diegetic yes. in the scene. I thought that was actually pretty clever. Um so, yes, again, the rape scene does feature violin, but it is not amusing, as our this guy on the letterbox named Andrew said. Yeah, it's reemphasizing. I mean, she's she's just coming out of her shell that evening, thanks to the dance, um, a little bit. But here she is. The, the one thing that made her, seemed to be making her happy a short time ago, i.e. the music from the violin, um, suddenly that's, that's going to be, you know, highlighting this horrible trauma. It's also taking place at her home. I mean, she's she's there. The attack is undercutting all sense of safety or comfort that Belinda has, admittedly in a world that already doesn't treat her very well. Um, and this film is this film is highlighting just how difficult uh, life apparently was for uh, again deaf and mute people, particularly in areas where people didn't seem to care very much about uh, learning. And just tangentially related to that point, something that I found additionally um, degrading to her was there seemed to be this idea that because she couldn't say so otherwise, she could just do any degree of manual labor her father wanted. Like, he basically treated her like a mule for part of the film. And until she's confirmed to be pregnant, her aunt is still ordering around and, and yelling at her to do stuff. Um, and is is pretty much fighting with her her father because her study of sign language is kind of taking away from some of her responsibilities. So in the second half of the movie, the towns she has the baby. The townspeople are suspicious of the origins of the baby. They assume it was the doctor who uh, theoretically raped her because she cannot mentally consent to sex. And so they get the idea that they should take this baby away from her by like thinking they can like trick her to signing these adoption papers um and then it ends up in a court battle i forgot i forgot to mention that like part of this uh who's the blonde woman so stella uh stella yeah stella is is Lockie's girlfriend she's also the assistant the rapist girlfriend but at the start of the movie at the start of the movie is she, is she dr richardson's assistant or just like Correct. associate with him in some way she's his assistant okay so St- at the start of the movie stella is dr richardson's assistant she's got the hoss for him Yes. And he either is oblivious to or ignores her advances, one of the two. And so she goes off and marries 
What's the guy's name? Lockie. 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 It's like Lockie and, McLaughlin or something like that. And and what's ironic and also kind of twisted is that uh, so they're at the dance hall, Lockie and Stella, and they're at the dance hall when like Doctor Richardson and Belinda show up, and like Stella sees Doctor Richardson and Belinda together, and like they're not like together romantically, they're just like you know friendly, but like she gets jealous seeing Doctor Richardson with another woman, and that kind of like drives her to Lockie, and then like Lockie also kind of like takes a shine to Belinda from across the room. And so Stella like scolds him and says, stay away from her. And like, you kind of get the sense that her scolding is what led him to later seek her out when he's drunk later in the evening. Well, and she says, she says something like, well, at least she wouldn't blab on you or something like that. Um, Which is pretty horrible too. Like it's her jealousy of the doctor that puts the idea into Lockie's head to go, assault belinda which is really upsetting correct really this is all a really all a broad's fault that us all went down women their jealousy am i right according to the 1940s hollywood i guess but then it's it's stella and locky who are attempting to uh, uh, get trick belinda to signing adoption papers that could take her baby away from her and locky and stella can raise it and like the townspeople think this is like better for the kid because they think again belinda's deaf and dumb and that her father's a rapist theoretically that's true but not in the way they they think and so stella thinks she's just like help doing what's best for the kid with the town behind her not realizing that her husband Lockie actually is the kid's dad correct and wants the kid because he's the biological father yes yeah he's and he's he's really possessive about it extremely possessive yes and and then that's that's his undoing ultimately because it becomes clear to Stella what the situation is. He basically outs himself and, and well, he admits to yeah. Her. yeah, he admits that's my kid. Yeah. And things that go downhill for Lockie very quickly thereafter. Yes. And then Stella's the one at the end who maybe has like the biggest arc of any right. of the characters and speaks up at the trial basically being the the, the smoking gun piece of evidence that saves um belinda i i like on paper didn't work for me the way it was done it felt very deus ex machina to me yeah first of all it's it's deus ex machina second of all as i kind of alluded earlier it ties up so quickly and wraps up so quickly i think she starts speaking to like give the smoking smoking done gun explanation to to the judge and like there's two minutes left in the movie when she starts giving her explanation here, and then the movie just like ends, and, and no one really does any due diligence or is skeptical at all. She's just like, "No, he told me it's his baby." And they're like, "Well, that settles that shit." Like, <laughs> yeah. well, okay. So the, the the trial is because Lockie goes. So after Stella tries to get Belinda to sign the papers to for the adoption, and Belinda refuses because she knows how to read right. and doesn't want to sign her baby over. Uh, Lockie then goes into the goes into Belinda's house to try to like. I don't know, take the baby by force, basically. And so Belinda's was not ready the first time Lockie came by and raped her, but is ready this time and has a shotgun. And she shoots Lockie down instead of letting him take her baby. Uh, And so she's on trial for murder. And it's only because Stella comes in and says, oh, no, he actually raped Belinda. That's why she shot him. And then it's okay. This is all after the doctor, Dr. Richardson, who apparently is also a lawyer. Uh, like, well, he's not a lawyer, he, but he kind of like acts as her lawyer. No, he he steps um, in. He in, step- in the five minutes that this movie becomes a courtroom drama. He steps in because he's as her interpreter, and she doesn't really have much of a defense attorney. She's basically just there. There, this is a kangaroo court. 
they're just assuming that the deaf and dumb woman, or what they think, excuse me, the deaf mute woman who they call the dummy, she's guilty. She's either crazy or she's just guilty and she's a danger, so we have to put her away and take her baby away from her. And he shows up just in the nick of time to serve as the interpreter, and they're not really buying it from him because they're all like, well, you're friends with her, you're in love with her, you're, after all, you fathered her child. And as you said, suddenly Stella gets her groove back and stands up and <laughs> speaks against uh, her late husband. And that's the movie. That's, yes, that's, that's literally how it ends. That's it. It's all <laughs> that's, rushed. We've covered the movie now. Like that's that's what the movie is. You can watch it, but like we, you're not missing anything besides what we've talked about. I feel. Like. I think you're missing a few. Uh, again, I keep, I feel like I'm like the defender of this. I didn't love this movie, but that's fine. Um, yeah, there were, I thought, a few choices in terms of the use of shadows and the use of like ground level. Um, like low angle shots that were effective or interesting for me, keeping this from just kind of being a, a filmed play because it is based on a stage play. Um, yeah, you know, particularly in that horrible rape scene, I think the use of the lighting and the shadows in that adds to um, the like intense effect of the dominance and the darkness that's going on there. Um, and then some of the shots as well when she's giving birth off screen. Um, I thought it had some really nice, like deep staging and shadows as well. I agree. I really liked that the way that scene is set up and and staged downstairs on the lower level of the house with uh, the farmer with Black McDonald, her father, and the doctor coming back and forth. That scene is is I think done really well, um, and it looks good. But I just this film. It's just kind of so simple, it's almost forgettable. It, it, it doesn't really have much staying power, unfortunately. And at least that's how... I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that this film really holds up. Not only because it's of a different era, it just it doesn't have any real impact that lasts. Yeah. Uh, to your point, I watched this like eight eight or nine days ago, and like I, I had to read the Wikipedia summary before we recorded, because I forgot. A lot of it left my head. Um, I don't want to discount how, you know, um, of the, you know, innovative this might've been in 1948, uh, subject matter wise, whether it be depiction of sexual assault or depiction of, of non-hearing people, but like in, in 2023, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. It's, it's fine. It's, it's like, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that this is the kind of movie that would get 12 Oscar nominations, be nominated for best picture and be one of the top five highest grossing movies of a year. That's like pretty fascinating to me. It's like a document of what the 1940s media environment was like. That's, that's, it's more of a curiosity in that sense for me than anything else. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a fair assessment. Uh, quick question. Why is this called Johnny Belinda? Um, I, I <laughs> guess, so, I, I don't know, I, I worked on that as well. The deaf woman is named Belinda, her last name is McDonald, and she gives birth to a son named Johnny. And so, I've never met someone who goes by the uh, a given name and then their last name is just their mom's first name. Well, so, oh yeah, never mind. Um, yeah, that's kind of weird. Um, I thought you were asking a like different a, question, like a like a, a, a bastard child kind of thing. Is that a was that a thing back then? I, don't, I have no idea. Uh, here. Any bastard children from the '40s out there? Uh, write in, let us know. Yeah, please write in. Uh, tweet at us. Yeah, I, that's actually not the question I thought you were asking. I thought you were asking like why name it after the baby. But why is the baby named? I mean, that? that's also a great question. Like, why why name the movie after the baby? E- even though you're not naming it after the baby, you're kind of naming it after the baby and its mom, kind of. Yeah, 
Um, I don't know that I like have a better suggestion for a title, but I guess in naming it that it's placing some sort of emphasis on all of the things that like the babies represents, one of which being, you know, the trauma that she's been through, but also, you know, you could give a somewhat maudlin, but still like positive representation of a deaf mute woman um, succeeding in an ableist society out of the movie and so the baby represents not just her capacity as a mother but also the way in which the people start to see her as an actual person um the way she takes agency against her rapist and then it's kind of at the end that she actually gets to keep her child um so i don't know maybe it's it's just kind of underscoring like the the gifts or the beautiful things that or in the movie that come out of what's really horrible. I don't know. Cause I think that's, I think that's kind of the lane the movie is trying to take. Um, there's a line the doctor says about something like, you know, the worst thing you can do is to let somebody down who needs you or something like that. Um, and who needs you more than an infant? Not that she was letting anybody down by any stretch. If, if the infant, 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 not infinite, if the infant had been taken from her, that was strictly the mechanisms of, like discriminatory bureaucracy but um just the fact that we know at the end that she is a we've seen the entire time she's a loving caring person and she gets to raise this child um gives it a little bit of a warm fuzzy there you know i don't know if that explanation is adequate or if it really makes any sense but that's that's all i got that's the adequate promise that we have here at serious film people is there any – I'm complete spitballing just because, like, we're running short right now, and I just want to fill some time talking about this movie best I can. It, it, it does open in such a way that, like, emphasizes the isolate the isolated nature of this community, how there's, like, no paved roads. It's only accessible by boat. Um, it is, like, an insular community. And, like, not to be mean, but, like, the people there are pretty ignorant about, like, stuff. I don't, I don't think that's mean. Are, I don't think it's mean either. I think that's – well, the doctor arriving, again, is worldly and, like, again, teaches them that deaf people actually have thoughts. Is there any connection there to, like, the insularity of the community and, like, Belinda being isolated herself inside an already isolated space? And, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm talking through any, any – any, is there anything there? Is this anything? Uh, no, I, I think you're right on that it's – I don't know that there's, like, something super deep to it, but it's this kind of, like, the the danger of – these gossipy small towns, which we would have seen in small town America in the 40s and 50s for sure, heck, in small town America in the 2020s, but um, was was definitely a part of like kind of suburban sprawl at the time. And even though this is in Nova Scotia, uh, it, it certainly is reflecting a lot of what you would have seen in kind of post-war America. Right. It's a it's a community that is kind of governed by its small town prejudices and the rumor mill. I mean, that's really the threats that at play here. Thanks to their ignorance, thanks to their prejudice, she's isolated from the community, which itself is isolated from the rest of the world. And yep, that's kind of what it's going for. Yeah, yeah, because of and because of their because of that kind of you know self self uh, I guess fulfilling circular society that they live in. Rumors are what really lead. Uh, the townsfolk and their their daily interactions with one another. It's it, news gets around really quickly, and there's no way to reason or um, 
educate these people out of their preconceived ideas and notions. The Cold War blacklisting of suspected communists as well begins in like 1946. And I'm not saying that being an accused rapist and being a communist are the same thing, but uh, there's certainly, I think, a relevancy to the guilt by association or guilt by rumor and hearsay that might have made this film particularly resonant at the time as well. I just thought of a modern connection. The uh, the lady who runs like the shop in the Banshee of the Vine of Sharon, and she's mm-hmm. a big gossip. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's t- it's a full town full of that woman mm-hmm. yes. just copied and pasted over and over again, yes. <laughs> talking about this uh, pregnant deaf girl. That's that's what this movie is basically. Yeah. All right. I think we usually like talk about like how this movie would hold up against like modern Best Picture nominees and that kind of thing, or like would this be nominated today? And I guess TJ, to your point, like we, it's not like we no longer nominate movies that maybe may have less artistic merit, but more, you know, the Academy patting itself on the back for being progressive, that kind of thing. That obviously still happens. Um, I don't want to besmirch recent movies by naming them, but we all have our ideas of what movie might fit that mold. Uh, and I think this is like more in that vein. I, I again, I'm pretty astounded this got 12 Oscar nominations. Uh, this is more a a curiosity for me than anything else of like what what passed for prestige and populist in the 1940s uh but beyond that like as we've covered this doesn't really hold up to my modern sensibilities as a movie watcher i think that's fair i mean i i i wouldn't sit here and say like shouldn't have been nominated you know because it's like (laughs) you'd have to be in again in the time and i think precisely what you said about we we still do this sort of like I agree with that sort of pra- <laughs> sort of praising yeah, of movies, yeah. um, and perhaps that was, is what was seen here. Um, and I also I also want to say that like the the Academy Awards or whomever championing certain progressive causes, like that's often a good thing, if not usually a good thing. Uh, that means sometimes like sometimes you end up in a situation like this where like several decades later the movie doesn't really hold up as well, but like you know. If this did actually introduce audiences to the concept of ASL and that, you know, if this helped remove the term deaf and dumb from people's vocabulary, which was still <laughs> thrown around a lot, um, I think it's a net good for sure. Yeah. Who can, who yeah, can argue I, with that? I don't I don't think this is in any way a harmful film. I think to your point, it's no, 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 it, no, no. it's certainly yeah, it, it, it's to the extent that it may be offensive to modern uh, audiences, I think just because just because it's astonishing to see a film made in the late 40s and think that this passed for something new or something maybe informative to uh, the general the general public i mean like tj mentioned earlier this is still an era the, the era of the Hayes code this is one of if not the the only films of that era that's allowing the depiction or even the suggestion of a rape uh yeah and that, that totally separate from the fact that she's deaf and mute, the fact that there is a rape in the film, and that she is at at, at some point put on trial and is accused uh, of murder, when in fact she's defending herself against her attacker. Now, granted, it takes it, it, the attack takes place after the fact of the rape, but it, it doesn't change the fact that still the attacker is the one who is the victim, as far as the townspeople are concerned. And in between the rape and the attack of the rapist, there's whispers of her being like, you know, a hussy or whatever, because she's pregnant out of wedlock, which is, again, someone being a victim of sexual assault and then being whispered out in unsavory terms is not a, you know, 
that's still pretty relevant. Yeah. Several decades later. I, I think not, not to try to make this movie offensive, but I think you could take issue with the fact that the, the rape very much is a plot device. Um, it and it's treated from the it perspective. Is, it is arguably the break into two. If yeah. That breaks. Well, and it's treated from the perspective of like kind of a social problem. And it's not really treated from the, pers- from like the personal perspective, uh, getting to what I said earlier about, um, Belinda's not a very deep character because they just don't give her much to communicate. You know, they just kind of give her, again, as opposed to like a lot of the uh, characters who use ASL that we've seen in films over the past, you know, 10-ish years. Um, And so you could say that it's kind of maybe exploiting that trauma a bit. Again, I I don't want to push this too much. I just want to think about... um, what some other ways of, of understanding it might be. I don't think this is offensive by any means, but I think it's patronizing. I think it's the best way to put it. And TJ, you said that like an hour ago, that it's patronizing. It is. It's very patronizing. Yeah, I'm done. I'm good on Giant Belinda. Any other <laughs> closing thoughts from anybody? I don't think there is anything more we can say. It... I will say, so we watched we watched Hamlet last week. I mean, we record, we our episode of last week was Hamlet, but we, we watched it months ago at this point. Um, I didn't, particularly like that movie but i at least watched that and i'm like okay yeah i get it i get why this is non-made for oscars and one best picture this i'm like hmm interesting that's weird that this used to be prestige it just doesn't it just doesn't play well 70 70 plus years later it just it's an unfortunate reality of movies that we'll, we'll be talking about more of them no doubt in the coming episodes but uh yeah yeah, it's just kind of, uh, unfortunately, one of those films that you can see why it's somewhat lost to history. So next week, we're doing a movie that is, uh, I would say, less lost to history. Yes. Uh, the reason the reason I've heard of next week's movie is because I've heard, I- I've seen <laughs> uh, clips on the internet of Martin Scorsese talking about movies on various talk shows. And there's like a bunch of like uh, clips of just like, he's presumably speaking at length about these movies, but just like a... a, a what's the uh, like a super cut of him just naming titles and just he just says the red shoes over and over again so i know that martin scorsese loves the red shoes so if you've if you've seen the unbearable weight of massive talent there's a scene in there where pedro pascal's character takes nicholas cage into an underground bunker that's like a shrine of just props from all his movies marty has that for the red shoes (laughs) (laughs) you'd be forgiven for thinking that uh yeah, this is yeah our next episode. Uh, Emmer, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's The Red Shoes. So uh, tune in because we'll uh, also we'll also known in. as Proto Black Swan. Right. Is it? I don't know anything about it besides that Marty likes it. That's the only thing I know about The Red Shoes. Oh, you haven't seen the you haven't seen The Red Shoes yet? No. Oh, uh, not as of this recording. No. Interesting. All right. By the time you hear this episode, I've watched it, mm. but not right now as we're recording it. Uh, please. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, or whatever. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, tune in again next week for The Red Shoes. We mean you, Marty. Yes, exactly. <laughs>